few years ago, there uh, was a trilogy of novels that was published. It was called The Hunger Games, and uh, then there were some movies that were made <clears throat> as a result of that. And, and the idea of The Hunger Games is this fictional uh, country called Penem in North America, and the, the capital is found somewhere uh, in the Rocky Mountains. And in the capital, you find all kinds of financial prosperity, technological advance. And there are 13 districts around it <clears throat> that vary in degrees of poverty. And, and, and the role of the districts is to provide all of the good things to the capital. And so while the capital gets richer, the districts get poorer. And, uh, and so it goes. And supposedly the exchange is for peace peace that is forced, is forced labor. And so uh, on one occasion, one of the districts, I think it's District 12, decides that, that uh, uh, it's not good for their people to be starving uh, to death while, while the capital has abundance of food. And so they protest and, and the capital retaliates with lethal force and they completely destroy District 12. You can imagine what a horrible thing is to live in poverty and starvation, but then to have your own government bomb you and really uh, blot you out of the map. When, when a people is uh, struck by enemy nations, it can be very, very discouraging, very, very disconcerting. But when a people is attacked by its own people, it can really be disheartening. After dealing with external opposition, Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem now faced internal obstacles. They had dealt with enemies from the outside, but now they are dealing with issues on the inside. And so I've called today's message Internal Obstacles. We're continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah with the idea of rebuild, rebuilding Jerusalem. And we are going chapter by chapter through the book of Nehemiah. And today we come to chapter five, and I'd like to call your attention to verse one, where the scripture says, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Let me just pause there before we read the, next, the rest of the chapter. The people had made tremendous progress in the rebuilding project. They had gotten all the way to uh, half of, of, of the building. Nehemiah had led them to face the opposition, but now they have an outcry about, about issues that are going on inside. You know, sometimes the toughest opposition comes from those on the inside. Sometimes our biggest heartaches are from people who we love. Sometimes our greatest disappointments come from people that we call brothers and sisters, don't, don't they? And so as we look at at this story, I want us to, to notice a couple of things. And, and the first one is that God's people can choke God's work with insider issues. Uh, the rebuilding of the wall had been successful thus far. They, they had reached the halfway point. You remember verse 6 in Nehemiah 4 says, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached 
have its height. So, so they had made tremendous progress, but now the work was coming to a halt. The external opposition had not stopped them. All of the armies that surrounded them, the threat of their lives had not managed to stop them. It slowed them down a little bit, but they continued the work. But, but now there, there was insider issues that were choking the work. And, and these issues were both physical and they were social. If you remember from chapter four that we read last week, uh, in verse 10, it says, meanwhile, the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. The workers were getting tired. The work was getting difficult. And you know, they didn't go to Home Depot to get new materials for the wall. They didn't, they didn't have a lumber supply close to them that, that they could draw from. So what they did is they took the stones that had been knocked over in order to rebuild the wall. So they had been able to salvage several good stones and, and they had been able to place them and, and to begin to rebuild. But, but now they had gotten to the point where everything that was left were broken pieces and, and they couldn't even get to the wall because of this rubble, because of these ruins that, that were around them. They needed to remove the rubble inside the city. They needed to clean up. And then beyond this physical rubble that needed to be cleaned up, there was also social rubble. There were systemic problems in this fragile Jewish society. There was financial oppression. You, you read that uh, in verse 2 of Nehemiah 5. Uh, follow with me. The reading says, Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Some of the Jews in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem were, were so poor that in this rebuilding project they had run out of food. And to add insult to injury, there was a famine. They hadn't been able to, to get as much of a harvest and, and there was a lack of food. And, and, and in the midst of their need, they couldn't continue to build the wall because they were hungry. And so what they had to do to feed their family is they had to mortgage their homes. They had to mortgage their farms. They, they, they had to, to give up their property deed for a time so that they could get food. You imagine that's, that's a pretty difficult thing to do. If you, if you had to mortgage your own home just to buy bread. And, and then on, on top of that, there, there is this difficulty uh, that uh, the king of Persia demanded a property tax from the people. Imagine having to pay a property tax on property that you had to mortgage. 
And, and they didn't have money to buy food, much less would they have money to pay the property tax. And so the only thing that they had left was, was their hands and their children to work. And, and so they offered their children as bond servants so, so that they could work for a certain amount of years so, so they could pay the taxes. That's a pretty oppressive way to live. The bottom line is that the Jews who were poor were getting poorer and poorer and poorer. And, and the Jews who had been well off were getting richer and richer. They, they were uh, taking advantage of their brother's demise. They were loan sharks that preyed upon the workers, making their situations unbearable. The, the, the work of rebuilding the wall was, was difficult and demanding. But it became practically impossible when there was starvation and homelessness and they were subjected to the humiliation of servanthood. When, in World War II, when, when the Germans began to occupy some of the islands off of uh, England, the coast of England, they, they would arrive and they would confiscate all of the animals of local farmers, their pigs and, and their cows, so that they could feed the German army and they would give the farmers potatoes. They, they lived on a diet of potatoes. Now that's a, that's a horrible thing to do, that the animals that you raised and that were yours are feeding the army that's occupying you and you're eating potatoes. That, that's a horrible way to live. But, but in this case, it wasn't the Nazis that were doing that to them. It was the same Jews that were doing that to each other. It was not the Persians or the Samaritans. It, it wasn't the Ammonites or the Philistines or the Arabs. It was their own people. So when they couldn't stand it anymore, they cried out. It was unjust. It was unbearable. It was unsustainable. It, it's a difficult thing to deal with when people on the inside have, have betrayed you, have hurt you, have taken advantage of you. I, I hear the voice in my head of, uh, of a husband who says, my, my, my wife has betrayed me and, and, and I don't know what to do. I can't focus on work. I, I can't eat. I can't sleep. It's difficult. I, I, hear, I hear the voice of, of the wife who says, my, my husband has abandoned me and, and he's taken all of our financial resources and left me with the children and, and I don't know what to do. I, I, I try to move on. I have faith in God. I, I, I'm committed to follow him, but, but uh, I, I can't help but be angry when I know how he's living it up and we're just struggling to make ends meet. I, I hear the voice of, of, of the parent of adult children who says, it really hurts when my adult children stiff army and they don't want me in their lives and they, and they say ugly things to me. They, they say words that, that are hurtful and, and don't want me to be involved with my own grandchildren. It, it, it's difficult for me to continue even though I trust God and I want to be joyful. I, I hear the voice of the adult child that says, I can't go on with the plans for my life because my parents are opposing me. My, my parents are getting in the way. They, they don't want me to to fulfill the goals that I have set for myself and it's really difficult for me to move on. I, I hear the voice of a church member that says, you know, I'm, I'm really hurt. I was trying to follow God and I trusted people in church and, 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 and I shared with them and I was vulnerable with them and, and they've gossiped about me and they've betrayed me and, and it's hard for me to continue to follow Jesus when I know the people I trusted most let me down. It, it's hard at night. It's hard to sleep. It's hard to go on. It's difficult to make progress in life 
when the people that are close to you have hurt you. It's like emotional rubble that has to be removed, but it's a lot easier said than done. It's amazing how God's work can be delayed if not derailed by internal opposition. Sometimes the biggest obstacles to the advancement of God's purposes is God's people. God's people can choke God's word, work with insider issues. But godly persons confront injustice with God's word. When Nehemiah discovered these injustices, he became angry and rightly so. Look at verse six. When I heard their outcry in these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say, we serve a God of justice and mercy, don't we? And, and those that, that follow God love justice and mercy. Those whose heartbeat beats with God's heartbeat love justice and mercy. That's what Micah said when he said, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Nehemiah did that. He confronted the oppressors. He called them out for taking advantage of their fellow Jews. He reminded them that they had been redeemed, that at one point they had been enslaved, but God rescued them. Common sense should have told them that it was wrong. Any sense of human dignity should have told them that it was wrong to do so, but but even more so, God's word was clear about it. Look at verses 9 through 13. He said, so I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. Nehemiah appeals to the oppressors and he calls them to walk in the fear of the Lord. Did you notice this is a spiritual thing? It's a social injustice, but it requires a spiritual solution. Their economic injustice was a sin before God. God's word was explicit about this. 
The law of Moses spelled it out. If, if you took something as a pledge, if you took something as collateral for a loan uh, that you've made to your brother, you were supposed to give it back within a reasonable amount of time so that your brother wouldn't go without. Deuteronomy 24, 10 through 13. It's, a, it, it's, it's an example. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. See, mutual consideration and human dignity was to characterize the people of God. That, that when you made a loan and, and when you got collateral for it, you were supposed to make sure that your brother or your sister wasn't cold at night because you kept their blanket. It's a righteous act before God when, when you act justly toward them, he says. If a Hebrew was so poor that he didn't have any collateral and he needed a loan, and the only thing that he could do was to offer his labor. He could offer himself as a bond servant, but it was for a limited time. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 15. Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 15. It says, if any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. What an incredible thing. God makes this provision. That if anybody had to be a bondservant, it, it wouldn't be perpetual. It wouldn't be forever. He reminds his people where they were when he rescued them. The Hebrews were slaves in Egypt when God rescued them. The Hebrews were foreigners in the land of Egypt and sojourners through the wilderness before they came to the promised land. And God says, remember, remember, remember where you were when I saved you. Remember where you were when grace found you. May we never forget where we were when grace found us. The law of Moses was very clear about charging interest from other Jews when they made a loan. Exodus 22:25 is one of those examples. It says, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. Do you notice how personal God makes this. He says, if you lend people to one of, money to one of my people, he's making it personal. He said, if you take advantage of a brother in, in trouble, you offend me. If you profit from the demise of a fellow Jew, you have sinned against me, God says. Nehemiah confronted the people of his day with, with God's word. He spoke prophetically about their injustice. That's what, that's what, being a prophet is, is speaking truth to power. Nehemiah tells them to return their farms and their, their vineyards and, and their homes and to return the interest that they had charged. 
And he doesn't just make sure that, that they do right but what they had already done, but he holds a ceremony to make sure that this is the way moving forward. That they understand that, that this is the way that they are to relate to one another. See, before repairing the wall, Nehemiah knew that he had to repair the social fabric of the people of God. God's people confront injustice with God's word. God's word tells us that, that human life is sacred, that God loves human life, and so we, we advocate for human life from the womb to the tomb. God's word tells us that, that biblical marriage is, is sacred, that the marriage between a man and a woman uh, in his eyes for until death do us part, and, and so we advocate for, for the sacredness of marriage. God's word tells us that God cares about the poor and the foreigner and the widow and the orphan. And because we advocate for the sacredness of life, because we advocate for the sacredness of marriage, we also advocate for the poor and the foreigner and the widow and the orphan. In fact, did you know that the Bible says more about caring for the poor and the foreigner and the widow and the orphan than it says about abortion or about gay marriage? We confront prophetically with God's word what God has said. Injustice is rubble that needs to be removed. Oppression, it's an obstacle to God's plan and it needs to be removed. Dissension and broken relationships are the garbage that we need to get rid of. Let's remove all the obstacles that stand in the way of us doing everything that God has called us to do and being everything that God has called us to be. Godly persons confront injustice with God's word. And third and finally, God's plan continues when the oppression is removed. Something very special happens when we write what is wrong. God is pleased when we remove the obstacles that stand in the way of his purposes. You know, social reforms have spiritual implications. The way that we, that we treat our neighbor has to do much with the way that we relate to God. The relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters are, are directly tied to the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father. Relational vitality is essential for the fulfillment of God's mission. Now go with me to verses 14 through 16 as we continue. It says, if anyone, rather, Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14. It says, moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Nehemiah had been appointed governor of Judah by the king of Persia. And so the king of Persia not only collected a property tax from all his provinces, but the governor had the right to collect the tax for his own expenses, for his own livelihood. So Nehemiah had the right 
to collect the tax from the people in Jerusalem so that he could have food to eat and he could have the comforts of a governor. But Nehemiah chooses not to collect this tax of this oppressed people, of these people who are already having a hard time. He chooses not to collect this tax. You know why he does it? He says, out of reverence for God. It's not an economic thing for him. It's a spiritual thing. He understands that, that God blesses us when we remove oppression. His commitment is to rebuild the wall, but he understands that the wall is not going to be built as long as people are oppressed. Not only did he forfeit the allotment that was rightfully his, but he shared his table with staff and administration. Look, we're going to wrap up the, the passage. Verse 17 says, Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. That's a big table, by the way. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. I would have liked to have been a friend of Nehemiah. Barbecue every day. Barbacoa every day. Some of you are getting hungry already, right? Nehemiah took care of the people out of reverence for God because he was committed to the mission of God. See, servant leaders don't take advantage of the people they serve. Servant leaders don't use their position to advance their own agenda. Servant leaders pour of themselves, give of themselves for the benefit of the people, for the benefit of the work of God. Nehemiah's prayer at the end of this passage is very insightful. You know that Nehemiah's mission was to rebuild Jerusalem. But did you notice at the end of the passage that Nehemiah doesn't say, God, I hope you've noticed what a good builder I am. He doesn't say, God, did you notice what a good architect I am? Did you notice what a good engineer I am? He didn't say any of that. He said, God, I hope that you will have favor on me because I took care of your people. See, Nehemiah understood that more important than the wall was the people, the people of God. And God honors that. The social reforms that Nehemiah implemented were bigger than a wall. God used Nehemiah to bring about social reform, which would bring about spiritual renewal that would go beyond any construction project. And it reminds us today that God's work is about people. That the people of God are about doing God's work for the sake of people, for the sake of lives. People are important. People are more important than projects and programs. When people come to know Christ and the oppression of sin is removed from their lives, that's more important than any program, than any building. When, when, when a marriage is restored after it has been broken, and there's forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the power of God at work. When somebody who has been suffering under an addiction has the chains broken from that addiction and they're freed from that addiction, that's more important than any other program or any other institution. When, when, when we are about the business of bringing the gospel to people so that they can become all that God has called them to be, we pray for students so that all of the obstacles and all of the voices 
and all of their struggles are removed so that this weekend, at one weekend, they can hear God's voice clearly and they can surrender fully to him. That's more powerful than any project, than any budget, than any building, than any program. Because at the end of the day, it's about the people. We're so thankful for the people that God brings to our church. Every life is a story of redemption. I want you to hear from some people who have joined our church recently. My name is Juan Garcia and this is my wife. Hi, I'm Rosy Garcia. And we've been, uh, we've uh, become members here at Calvary and we have been visiting through from May of last year and uh, we decided uh, to become members. We feel like this is where God, God is guiding us to be and uh, we appreciate all your support as far as uh, receiving us as part of the family and um, we hope to and want to contribute to Calvary's uh, uh, work and be participants in giving and sharing and I accepted Christ at a very young age. I come from a Christian family and I decided to accept Christ when I was very young. It, it turns out we got baptized probably on the same day and didn't didn't realize it that we would later on get married. We have been coming to Calvary since May of last year. Uh, Dominic, our son, and Ale, they serve here in Calvary. We have a son overseas and his wife, Suheili. They're missionaries over in Europe. And I want to thank God and thank the family at Calvary for supporting them and through prayer. And they just visited the church that were here in December. And we want to thank Calvary for receiving us as members. I came to know the Lord when I was eight years old. Um, I was saved at 11, baptized at 17. And uh, I've been serving the Lord since then. And uh, we thank God for having a family here at Calvary and receiving us with love the way we have been feeling it. And thank you for, for receiving us as family. Hi, my name is Abraham. Uh, I came over to Calvary for a gig and um, we were told to play for the beginning of the service and then uh, to play for the end of the service. So we had two options to either go get, grab a cup of coffee or to sit and listen. And I sat and I listened and, and whatnot, and um, by the time the service was over, I couldn't say a word to anybody. Um, and I couldn't believe it, you know? Like, um, I decided to come by the next week, and the same thing happened again. And that just repeated itself over and over and over throughout the course of a few weeks. Finally, I got to muster up the courage to speak to Pastor Julio and um, and and not not too too much after that, I, I was saved. I accepted Jesus Christ. Um, I got baptized in uh, Fielder Church in Arlington, Texas, last year in June. And um, I want to join Calvary because I feel that the Lord is calling me to minister to my family and friends, and um, hopefully make disciple makers of them. Hi, my name is Iram Lopez. Um, 
I live in West Lago, Texas, and I have decided to join Calvary Baptist Church. I was saved um, as a young child during VBS. Uh, I still remember it. Rambling road trip, I believe was the theme. And uh, I was baptized there as well. Uh, as I grew older, a lot of situations and circumstances happened in my life that were rather difficult and really caused uh, a lot of pain. And God really worked in me through mentors at uh, my high school. And I believe at that point, uh, I really, truly um, learned to feel Jesus. And that's really what turned my life around through those mentors and God really touching my heart at that time. Uh, my reason for coming to Calvary would be because I found community. I found community amongst the young adults. Um, I've met a couple friends through the BSM and I really enjoyed uh, their company and serving alongside them there. So the next step for me was to come and serve with them here at Calvary. So I'm excited to see what God's going to do here uh, with me at Calvary and I'm excited to join your family. Amen. Every day God is working in the lives of people to redeem, to save, and what a privilege we get to be a part of what God is doing in our church and through our church. So the question that we have to ask ourselves today that you need to ask yourself today is, what are the obstacles that are standing in the way of you becoming everything God wants you to become? What are the internal obstacles in your life that keep you from being the disciple maker that God wants you to be? What are the obstacles in our relationships in our church that stand in the way from our church becoming a partner in God's mission for God's glory so that we can pray and work to remove those, to remove the rubble? You know, we're reminded today that that the only hope in removing rubble and oppression, whether it's physical, social, emotional, or spiritual, the only hope that we have is in Jesus. I want to share with you a poem from Paul David Tripp that's called Hope. And it reads like this. The only hope, the only help, the only rescue, the only healing, the only solace, the only balm, the only redemption, the only restoration for a broken, dysfunctional, sin-scar, evil-infected, morally fallen, dark and dangerous world isn't found in information, socialization, education, political solution, psychological insight, or personal reformation. But in the willing birth, righteousness, humiliation, suffering, sacrifice, and resurrection of a God-man redeemer. No idea can liberate, no power can save, no institution can redeem, restore, resuscitate, or recreate what sin has destroyed. So a son had to come. Son of God, son of man. The creator came to recreate. The savior came to be the sacrifice. The blessed one came to suffer and in suffering to bless the world with hope, help, rescue, healing, solace, balm, redemption and restoration. The cost of it all was his life. It was his birth mission, his resurrection victory, history marched toward his coming. There was no other way and there is no other way. Would you stand with me? Father, I thank you 
that as we think of the rubble in our lives, as we think of the obstacles in church circles, as we think of the things that stand in the way of our obedience to you and our, the fulfillment of the mission, I thank you that the one who came from heaven to be born in a manger, to live a righteous life, went to the cross of Calvary to pay for all of our sins. And after he was buried on the third day, he rose from the dead to give us the power to be freed so that we are no longer slaves to sin, to shame, to guilt, but we are free, free people. Not so that we can just brag, but so that we can become agents of freedom within our church and through our church. So help us, oh God, to be people who are liberated and are liberators. Help us to be your agents of redemption. Help us to remove all of the rubble that needs to be removed. We want to bring it before you right now. Whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, whether it's financial, whether it's spiritual, whether it's relational. We put the rubble at your feet. We give it to you. Remove it from our lives. Remove it from our church. And allow the power of liberation and grace and love and peace to flow through every individual here, through your church, as we trust and obey you. We'll sing, and as we sing, you lay your rubble down at Jesus' feet and receive his grace and his freedom.